May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's sermon title is What Doesn't Fit on the To-Do List? What Doesn't Fit on the To-Do List? Friends, there is little that gives me more pleasure than a good to-do list. And my love for to-do lists is strong. As a teenager, I would create lists of tasks that I had to complete the following morning before heading to school. Take a shower, check. Print my AP US history paper, check. Pack my backpack, check. Eat breakfast, check. Get into the car by 7.35 a.m., check. I would even include items that I had to do just so I had the satisfaction of emphatically drawing a check mark by each bullet point. Wake up, check. Breathe, check, check. Last year, my husband bought me a productivity planner for my birthday. And if someone knew me less well, they might think that I'd be insulted by such a present. However, I found it to be one of the most thoughtful gifts I have ever received. I thought, he gets me. He really gets me. And I suspect that I am not the only person in this room who is preoccupied with productivity and time management. We are working and studying longer hours than ever before. And we live in a society that demands our attention 24-7. And we believe that if we organize our lives just so, if we map out our days just so, if we use the right organizational apps, we will be able to keep the messiness of life at bay and stay on top of all of the parts of life that request our attention. And although our obsession with productivity has accelerated in recent years with the integration of technology in our everyday lives, This is not a new phenomenon in American culture. Over a century ago, Max Weber identified the Protestant ethic driving the spirit of capitalism and the belief that the waste of time is the first and in principle, the deadliest of sins. So for many of us, this desire and obsession for order runs deep. And we have a hard time imagining a new way of living. So from our current cultural context, the story we heard in Mark today about Jesus's calling of the first disciples is radical and maybe downright unbelievable. 
After spending 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus heads to Galilee to begin his ministry. And he goes around proclaiming the good news of God. And upon his arrival to the Sea of Galilee, he comes upon some brothers, Andrew and Simon, mending their nets. And he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And without hesitation, without any fear of not finishing the task at hand, they drop their nets to follow him. And when Simon and Andrew leave their nets, they leave a way of life, the only way of life they have known. And a little farther down the road, Jesus, Simon, and Andrew come upon two other fishermen who also happen to be brothers. James and John, and they are mending their boats. And Jesus similarly calls them, and they also drop their work to follow him. The sacrifices the disciples make is underscored by the fact that James and John not only leave their boats, but they also leave their father. The disciples leave behind everything that is familiar to them and everyone who is known to them. Another remarkable element of this story is that the only words shared are from Jesus. The disciples say nothing. They don't provide any excuses. They don't ask any questions. The nimble freedom with which these first disciples respond to Jesus' summons might seem downright reckless to us today. And in his calling of these Galilean fishermen to discipleship, Jesus does not ask them to add something to their to-do list. He calls them into a new way of being. As preacher Ted A. Smith observed, the New Revised Standard Edition translation has Jesus say, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Now this makes it sound as if fishing for people was a task. Perhaps a better translation could be, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers for people. Fishers for people. This translation better lends to the idea that fishing for people, caring for people, sharing Christ's love with people is their new identity. Now let's not romanticize the discipleship of these men. For we well know the blunders and the betrayals that Jesus has yet to face. The story of Simon, Andrew, James, and John leaving their nets 
is one example of what it look of what it looks like to repent and believe the good news. Now, repentance does not mean feeling bad about something we've done, as we're often told. Rather, literally, repentance means a change in direction. Here, a reorientation of one's life in the direction of the kingdom. Their belief in the good news is evident in their willingness to pour themselves into this kingdom-building movement. And the disciples follow Jesus before he has performed any miracles that can serve as validating credentials. As theologian Karl Barth noted, they become disciples because Jesus claims them. And they want to be claimed, to be known, to be called, to be loved. And isn't that what we're all looking for? What is really at the bottom of our obsession with to-do lists and productivity? To find new ways of being known, new ways of finding meaning in our lives, to find more time with loved ones. And our obsession with productivity and to-do lists also relies upon the false notion that we can do it all ourselves. If we order and design our lives in the perfect way, we'll be able to accomplish everything that we set our minds to. And we won't have to rely upon anyone else for help. And God knows Jesus knows that we cannot do discipleship on our own. In fact, we cannot do our lives on our own. Jesus knows that he needs help spreading the good news. For he's only human. He is only one person. And when Jesus calls the disciples in Mark, there is no call for individualism. There's no being told, now you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's no man up. No, pull yourself together. Rather, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. In other words, Follow me, and you will never be by yourself. Follow me, and more will come. As biblical scholar Caroline Lewis observed, Jesus calls the disciples together, not separately. Andrew and Simon, and then James and John, Discipleship is not an autonomous vocation. Or rather, as I once heard someone say, it takes two to gospel. Lewis goes on to say, 
I think we forget that being saved by Jesus, to follow Jesus, mean that you have others around you who save you on a daily basis, to remind you of who you are and who you are called to be, to see you and appreciate you and celebrate you to tell you how far you have come and where God still needs you to go, to come alongside you so that you realize you are not alone. You are not alone. And so when Jesus is the one saying, follow me, it entails so much more than if anyone else did. It is a more than a mere following of someone else's lead. It's believing that you follow a God dedicated to discipleship. A God who cannot not invest in a relationship with you. It's also learning how to nurture and encourage and empower your relationship with others. It's knowing that our God calls us into this distinctive and loving way of being. As each of us, each and every one of us is wholly loved by God each and every one of us is uniquely called by God. So we need activists and advocates. We need teachers and students. We need mentors and peers. We need friends and neighbors. We need community and companionship. And some of us will need to take risks now, and others will take the next ones, and vice versa. For today, we need each other to call out those in power whose actions are antithetical to the gospel. And friends, this dangerously takes vulnerability and trust but we need each other. And that is what I hear in the calling of the disciples this morning. Now more than ever, we need each other. Let the church say, amen.